Chapter Eighteen of As We Forgive Them by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eighteen, The Crossways at Austin. The sound of the assassin's fast-receding footsteps as he escaped away down the dark avenue towards the road awakened me to a keen sense of my responsibility and in an instant I had divested myself of my overcoat and coat, and stood peering anxiously into the darkness beneath the bridge. Those seconds seemed hours until of a sudden I caught sight of a flash of white in midstream, and without a moment's hesitation I dived in after it. The shock of the icy water was a severe one, but fortunately I am a strong swimmer, and neither the intense coldness nor the strength of the current interfered much with my progress as i struck out towards the unconscious girl having seized her however i had to battle severely to prevent being swept out around the bend where i knew that the river joined by another stream broadened out and where any chances of effecting a rescue would be very small for some minutes i struggled with all my might to hold the unconscious girl's head above the surface yet so strong was the swirling flood with its lumps of floating ice that all resistance seemed impossible, and we were both swept down for some distance until at last, summoning my last effort, I managed to strike out with my senseless burden and reach a shallow where I managed by dint of fierce struggling to land and to drag the unfortunate girl up the frozen bank. I had once long ago attended an ambulance class, and now, acting upon the instructions I had there received, I set at once to produce artificial respiration. It was heavy work alone, with my wet clothes freezing stiff upon me, but still I persevered, determined, if possible, to restore her to consciousness, and this I was fortunately able to do within half an hour. At first she could utter no word, and I did not question her. Sufficient was it for me to know that she was still alive, for when first I had brought her to land I believed that she was beyond human aid, and that the dastardly attempt of her low-born lover had been successful. She shivered from head to foot, for the night wind cut like a knife, and presently, at my suggestion, she rose and, leaning heavily upon my arm, tried to walk. The attempt was at first only a feeble one, but presently she quickened her pace slightly, and without either of us mentioning what had occurred, I conducted her up the long avenue back to the house. Once within, she declared that it was unnecessary to call Mrs. Gibbons. In low whispers, she implored me to remain silent upon what had occurred. She took my hand in hers and held it. "'I want you, if you will, to forget all that has transpired,' she said, deeply in earnest. "'If you followed me and overheard what passed between us, I want you to consider that those words have never been uttered.' I, I want you to... She faltered, and then paused without concluding her sentence. What do you wish me to do, I inquired, after a brief and painful silence. I want you to still regard me with some esteem, as you always have done, she said, bursting into tears. I don't like to think that I've fallen in your estimation. Remember, I am a woman, and may be forgiven a woman's impulses and follies." you have not fallen in my estimation at all mabel i assured her my only regret is that the scoundrel made such an outrageous attempt upon you but it was fortunate that i followed you although i suppose i ought to apologize to you for acting the eavesdropper 
you saved my life was her whispered answer as she pressed my hand in thanks then she crept swiftly and silently up the big staircase and was lost to view next morning she appeared at the breakfast table looking apparently little the worse for her narrow escape save perhaps that around her eyes were dark rings that told of sleeplessness and terrible anxiety but she nevertheless chatted merrily as though no care weighed upon her mind while gibbons was in the room serving us she could not speak confidentially but as she looked across at me her glance was full of meaning at last when we had finished and had walked together across the great hall back to the library i said to her shall you allow the regrettable incident of last night to pass unnoticed if you do i fear that man may make another attempt upon you therefore it will surely be better if he understands once and for all that i was a witness of his dastardly cowardice no she replied in a low pained voice please don't let's discuss it it must pass why because if i were to speak to punish him he might bring forward something something that i wish kept secret i knew that i recollected every word of that heated conversation the blackmailer held some secret of hers which being detrimental she dreaded might be revealed surely it was all a strange and most remarkable enigma from beginning to end from that winter night on the highway near helpstone when i had found her fallen at the wayside until that very moment mystery had piled upon mystery and secret upon secret until with burton blair's decease and with the pack of tiny cards he had so curiously bequeathed to me the problem had assumed gigantic proportions that man would have murdered you mabel i said you are in fear of him i am she answered simply her gaze fixed across the lawn and park beyond and she sighed but ought you not to assume the defensive now that the fellow has deliberately endeavoured to take your life i argued his villainous action last night was purely criminal it was she said in a blank hollow voice turning her eyes upon me i had no idea of his intention i confess that i came down here because he compelled me to meet him he has heard of my father's death and now realizes that he can obtain money from me that i shall be forced to yield to his demands you may surely tell me his name i said herbert hales she replied not however without some hesitation then she added but i do wish mr greenwood you would do me a favor and not mention the painful affair again you do not know how it upsets me or how much depends upon that man's silence i promised although before doing so i tried my level best to induce her to give me some clue to the nature of the secret held by the uncouth yokel but she was still obdurate and refused to tell me anything that the secret was something which affected herself or her own honour seemed quite plain for at every suggestion of mine to bring the fellow face to face with her she shrank in fear of the startling revelation he could make i wondered whether that document for her eyes only which had been written by the man now dead and which she had destroyed on the previous night had any connection with the secret known by herbert hales indeed whatever the nature of that fellow's knowledge it was potent enough to compel her to travel down from london in order if possible i supposed to arrange terms with him fortunately however the household at mayville was unaware of the events of the previous night 
and when at midday we left again to return to London, Gibbons and his wife stood at the door and wished us both a pleasant journey. The house steward and his wife, of course, believed that the object of our flying visit was to search the dead man's effects, and with the natural curiosity of servants, both were eager to know whether we had discovered anything of interest, although they were unable to question us directly. Inquisitiveness increases with a servant's trustworthiness, until the confidential servant usually knows as much of his master's or mistress's affairs as they do themselves. Burton Blair had been particularly fond of the Gibbonses, and it almost seemed as though the latter considered themselves slighted by not being informed of every disposition made by their dead master in his will. As it was, we only told them of one, the legacy of two hundred pounds apiece which Blair had left them, and this had, of course, caused them the most profound gratification. Having deposited Mabel at Grosvenor Square, and taking lingering leave of her, I returned at once to Great Russell Street, and found that Reggie had just returned from the warehouse in Cannon Street. Acting upon my sweet little friend's appeal, I told him nothing of the exciting incident of the previous night. All I explained was the searching of Blair's writing-table, and what we had discovered there. "'Well, we ought, I think, to go and see that house by the crossways,' he said, when he had seen the photograph. "'Doncaster is a quick run from King's Cross. We could get there and back tomorrow.' I'm interested to see the house to discover which poor Blair tramped all over England. This must have come into his possession, he added, handling the photograph, without any name or any clue whatever to its situation. I agreed that we ought to go and see for ourselves. Therefore, after spending a quiet evening at the Devonshire, we left by the early train next day for Yorkshire. On arrival at Doncaster Station, to which we ran through from London without a stop, we took a fly and drove out upon the broad, snowy high-road through Bentley for about six miles or so, until, after skirting Outston Park, we came suddenly upon the crossroads where stood the lonely old house, just as shown in the photograph. It was a quaint old place, like one of those old toll-houses one sees in ancient prints, the old bar being, of course, missing. The gate-post, however, still remained, and snow having fallen in the night, the scene presented was truly wintry and picturesque. The antique house, with its broad smoking chimney at the end, had apparently been added to since the photograph had been taken, for at right angles was a new wing of red brick, converting it into quite a comfortable abode. Yet, as we approached, the old place rising out of the white, snow-covered plain breathed mutely of those forgotten days when the York and London coaches passed it when masked gentlemen of the road lurked in these dark fir plantations which stood out beyond the open common at Kirkhouse Green, and when the postboys were never tired of singing the praises of those wonderful cheeses at the old Bell and Stilton. Our driver passed the place, and about a quarter of a mile further on we stopped him, alighted, and walked back together, ordering the man to await us. On knocking at the door an aged old woman in cap and ribbons opened it, whereupon Reggie, who assumed the position of spokesman, made excuse that we were passing, and noticing by its exterior that the place was evidently an old toll-house, could not resist the inducement to call and request to be allowed to look within. "'I'm sure you're very welcome, gentlemen,' answered the woman in her broad Yorkshire dialect. "'It's an old place, and lots of folks have been here and looked over it in my time.' Across the room were the black old beams of two centuries before— 
The old chimney corner looked warm and cosy with its oaken, well-polished settle, and the big pot simmering upon the fire. The furniture, too, was little changed since the old coaching days, while about the place was a general air of affluence and comfort. "'You've lived here a long time, I suppose?' Reggie inquired, when we had glanced around and noted the little lancet window in the chimney corner whence the toll-keeper in the old days could obtain a view for miles along the high road that ran away across the open moorlands. "'I've been here this three-and-twenty years, come next Michaelmas.' "'And your husband?' "'Oh, he's here,' she laughed and then called. "'Come here, Henry, where are you?' And then she added, "'He's never left here once since he came home from sea eighteen years ago. We're both so very attached to the old place. A bit lonely, folks would call it, but Bert Wallace is only a mile away.' At mention of her husband's return from sea, we both pricked up our ears. Here was evidently the man for whom Burton Blair had searched the length and breadth of England. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.